Uh, how's everyone doing? I'm Ryan Shepard. Uh, I'm hosting with Ladarian Gillette, who also lets me know when I'm muted, among other amazing talents. It's excited to be, I'm excited to be with y'all today uh, for another great edition of Tuesday Talks. Um, we've got a really awesome lineup of speakers. And I think we're going to learn a lot today. So let's get right into it. The Carolina Global Innovation Hub convenes the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates space, programs, and support systems that connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And through our platform, we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programs. Uh, so today, we're going to uh, get ahead of Mother Earth Day, which is coming up later this week, and really uh, have an opportunity to chat with some amazing uh, women who are leading some pioneering work uh, in the space. As many of us are aware of climate change, man-made disasters, and other naturally occurring events uh, have continued to disrupt biodiversity in ways such as deforestation, land use change, intensified agriculture, livestock production, and the growing illegal wildfare trade. What, excuse me, illegal wildlife trade. This is the first Mother Earth Day celebrated within the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. Ecosystem supports all life on Earth. The healthier our ecosystems are, the healthier the planet and its people. So for this International Mother Earth Day, let's remind ourselves now more than ever that we need to shift to a more sustainable economy that works both for people and the planet. Let's promote harmony with nature and Earth. So in today's conversation, we're giving space to an amazing and pioneering group of women who are keeping communities and the climate at the center of their work in hopes of creating a healthier environment for all. So let me introduce you to our great speakers. First, I want you all to meet Amy Morse. Amy produces the Degrees, Pro the Degrees podcast at Environmental Defense Fund. She's obsessed with art and adventure and wants to inspire others to use their careers to have a positive environmental impact. Amy, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Next, I want you all to meet uh, Dr. Claudia Benitez-Nelson. Dr. Benitez-Nelson is an oceanographer and professor in the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment, whose research focuses on the biochemical cycling of carbon and nutrients in the ocean. She serves as an Associate Dean for Instruction, Community Engagement, and Research for the University of South Carolina's College of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Benitez Nelson, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, everyone. Excited to be here. Fantastic. And we're expecting a third speaker who may be running just a few minutes behind. I'll read her bio, and then if she joins us, we'll loop her right into the conversation. Candy White has emerged as a leading voice in the fight to bring visibility to impacts uh, to visibility to the impacts that climate change and environmental injustice are having on indigenous communities across North America. Upon completion of her master's degree in environmental management, Candy began her work with the Indigenous Environmental Network as the Tribal Campus Climate Challenge Coordinator. That is a mouthful. Engaging with more than 30 tribal colleges 
to instate community-based environmental programs, discuss issues of socio-ecological injustice, and connect Indigenous youth with green jobs. Just from reading that bio, I'm hoping that Candy joins us shortly because there's a lot uh, that I hope we can learn from her. Um, but let's get right into our conversation. So we always start by asking our speakers to tell us a little bit about the communities that you call home and the communities that you're advocating for through your work. So let's hear first from Dr. Benitez Nelson and then Amy. Sure, well, um, I'm biracial, uh, also Puerto Rican. And so for me, it's really important to have communities of color be involved in the conversation in terms of the work that we're doing, the research that we're doing. And if we're really gonna, I think, answer, resolve all these questions we have about climate and climate impacts, every voice has to be at the table and not after the fact. So that's where, that's where I come from as far as this conversation is concerned. Excellent. And we're excited to hear more about the amazing work that you're leading. Amy, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for through your work? Yeah, um, well, I grew up in New Hampshire uh, on a dirt road. And um, well, I experienced um, environmental impacts at a pretty young age and realized that, you know, we are all connected in this together. Um, acid rain was a big problem in New Hampshire. And even though locally we weren't contributing a lot of this pollution, coal-fired power plants were blowing from the Midwest and causing a lot of this pollution. So I realized at a fairly young age, as I was recycling and you know doing local stewardship activities, that there's a much bigger problem that is um, about the laws, about the governance issues. And it was really led to an awakening for me um, dealing with acid rain and also um, just the legacy of zoning issues. Um, we had a brownfield site located in our, our town and so the way the school districts are zoned, you know, you oftentimes have the wealthier towns right next to the not so wealthy towns um, because property taxes are the ways that our schools are funded. And um, so we had this um, polluting old tannery right next to where we went to school. And so it was just interesting to see that, you know, growing up and looking back now that my communities were kind of divided up and um, that environmental pollution was something that affected everyone in interesting ways. Sorry, I'm on mute again. Uh, I've never done that twice in one call. All right, we're gonna we're gonna lock in now. Um, but Amy, let's let's actually pick up on something that you mentioned um, in, in your opening around um, that connects to this this idea of green jobs and how that might be a way of um, preventing pollution from moving across communities, but also create ways for community members to engage in work that feels like it's moving us in a positive direction rather than kind of the moral dilemma about finding earnings that are not necessarily connected to clean jobs. Um, so talk to us a little bit generally about that topic and then give us some insight around some tools or some insights that uh, you're seeing that help to create more of those green jobs today and for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I produce a podcast called Degrees Real Talk about planet saving careers. And one of the things that's really interesting in my day to day is just that, you know, um, climate change can be a really daunting problem, right? And sometimes it feels paralyzing, you know, what can we do about this? But um, there's a generation of young folks who are really invested in making this part of our day to day. Um, you know, millennials and Gen Z and others who want to see a lot of um, our values reflected in the work that we do every day. So what we've seen in addition to all the polling that people are really upset and anxious about this and want to use their jobs 
as a way to make a difference. Um, you know, it's exciting in the podcast because we interview those folks all the time and it's really exciting um, to hear what solutions they're working on. But, um, you know, and I see from the government side right now, some excitement and a lot of momentum, which is looking at this challenge and opportunity of saying, you know, we need to slow the pace of climate change. We need to speed new solutions and research and development of alternative energies. We need to be thinking about the future and enabling a new crop of people coming up through college to be able to pursue those careers and to help us innovate for the future. Um, we have a lot of technologies that we can use right now to meet our 2030 climate goals of cutting emissions by half, but by 2050, we need to be building that as we get there. About half of the technologies we need for 2050 haven't yet been invented. So one of the exciting uh, opportunities for young folks today is to be working on those solutions. And so um, I'm really excited to hear from um, Dr. Benitez Nelson on um, you know, what's happening at the university level, but also you know, day to day, get really excited about what the Biden administration is doing and putting more money investments toward um, enabling you know, um, uh, students of color to pursue these fields and to uh, really incentivize a more diverse crop of folks to get into this, um, to the green space. Thank you. No, that's fantastic. So before we move along the conversation, you said something that I want to probe a little bit, and it's that half of the technologies we need haven't yet been invented. What does that even mean? Like, how do we make sense of that? Uh, how do we know that the thing isn't invented yet? And what gives us like optimism that we can, you know, get to those insights? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because this does get a little bit into the weeds, but um, a few things. Um, Right now, air pollution and the impact on human health is a major motivator in accelerating the shift to electric vehicles and zero emissions vehicles. Right now, transportation is the largest contributor to emissions in the United States. But right now we've seen China actually leading a lot of electrification in part because of the air pollution is killing people. <laughs> so, I mean, we look across the United States and we see the legacy of redlining and racist policies that still today contribute to about doubling the rate of hospitalizations from asthma in certain communities. So um, something I find kind of interesting about that is that as we innovate at, for zero emissions vehicles in particular, we are cutting air pollution that leads to more diseases and illness and helping to cut our climate emissions. So um, when we talk about you know, these technologies we haven't found yet, as we innovate, we're solving a lot of problems. And, you know, as far as I can tell, and disagree with me, Dr. Um, Benitez, but like, I don't, I don't see like many drawbacks to, to, to investing in our future this way, right? Um, this seems like it is the future. And um, we're really excited about trying to do that. But um, as we go the line, down the line from transportation emissions, there are many other sources. So the way we generate energy, you know, and, and things like that. So I could go on and on, but I will, I'll stop no, there. Thank you for clarifying. Now that was, that just was a cool thing that stood out to me. And I, I just wanted to learn more about how we measure that or how we kind of come to, to that conclusion. Um, Dr. Benitez Nelson, I see you nodding in agreement on some of those things. Do you want to chime in quickly around kind of technology and innovation and some of the things that you're seeing emerging from your lens? Sure. Well, first of all, please call me Claudia, number one. Um, <laughs> and then number two, Amy is right on point. She is so on point. I mean, we are like this remarkable group of people. I look at my students, you know, they're coming in. They are so smart. They have such great ideas. You know, they're coming from different perspectives, um, different life experiences. And so what they're thinking about, the problems that they want to solve, 
you know, they, they can. So I'm, I'm really optimistic and excited about it because they're thinking about things that we haven't even thought about yet. You know, like there's the things that we don't even know that we don't know um, that, that um, people are bringing to the table. And so, you know, I find that really exciting. You know, I come into a field that traditionally, you know, is, is very geared towards a certain group of individuals. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my, my parents would be like, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> Oceanography? What is that? Like, don't you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or go into business? You know, those are the, those are the kinds of things that, you know, I certainly heard. And so it's really nice to, to have this conversation to be like, no, I mean, you, you can come in and do a career and you could do good for the world. You can make money. It's okay to make money you know, doing green technology. And there's there's a lot of innovation and a lot of excitement to be had. So yes, Amy, yes. <laughs> I love that. So Claudia, tell us a bit more about um, your, your specific discipline in, in the field of oceanography and the role that it plays in larger discussions around climate change. Yeah, sure. You know, when we talk about climate and, you know, you, you were talking about it earlier, you were talking about land, things that are happening on land, land use. But you know, if you think about those 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide that we are putting into our atmosphere, you know, every year, those fossil fuels, that pollution, half of it goes to land, but half of it goes into the ocean, right? And so understanding, you know, how it's getting into the ocean, how much is getting into the ocean, what are the plants and animals, what are they experiencing um, when, you know, all of that pollution comes in is, is really important. Um, you know, the more we add, you know, we talk about our climate is warming, you know, we're just adding those blankets on the more, the more carbon dioxide we put in, it's getting hotter and hotter. Well, that impacts our oceans too. And so you can see it. We talk about, you know, corals, they're beautiful. We talk about how they're bleaching. Um, carbon dioxide not only makes the atmosphere warmer, but it makes the oceans more acidic right? It, like, it, it's like acid. It's adding acid to our oceans. And so that just has like a whole series of effects on the plants and animals that live in there. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to understand, you know, um, how those fossil fuels, how that pollution is getting into the ocean, what the impacts are on the organisms that live there, and then frankly, how it's getting transported down like deeper into the oceans away from the atmosphere, where maybe we can lock it away for an extended period of time you know, and, and maybe use that as a, as a potential solution for kind of mitigating, you know, all the pollution we're putting into our atmosphere right now. So um, that's the kind of work that I'm doing. That's why I'm really interested in it, because let's be honest, you hear about storms, hurricanes, sea level rise, that, that's me, that's all, that's all the oceans, you know, that, that's happening out there. And, and so um, this, is, this is a critical part of the uh, conversation. Absolutely. And um, I'd love to dive into that. We'll, we'll circle back to some of that because um, as we've expanded some of our work in the U.S., uh, we're thinking a lot about how we prepare and, and address um, environmental disasters when they occur, hurricanes, tornadoes, other forms, and also thinking about how we can raise um, awareness and create conversations for folks to make shifts in their own behavior um, so that we're all chipping in. Um, Amy, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the work that the Environmental Defense Fund is doing, particularly around equipping communities with the technology that they need uh, to create safer climate environments. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's one of the things I miss about being in the office with all my colleagues because, you know, we'll just be getting coffee or something like that. And you're around a little island and chatting with an ocean scientist, chatting with the lawyers, you know, and, and all these folks on my team. But EDF is a global organization. So we do a lot of work. But one of the things I'm really excited about at the community level is filling in a lot of the data gaps that we have right now about how pollution is impacting people's health. And so, um, you know, we've done a lot of this work in um, Oakland and Houston, we're doing it in London and a lot of other places as we expand this work. But right now, one of the big hurdles to actually passing better laws is not understanding the impact on human health. And so these air quality monitors will be, you know, spaced out at broad distances, we're not getting enough information, it's really hard for um, people to pursue legal action to protect themselves from this pollution because we don't have the information. And so EDF has really been leading the charge with teams of scientists, technology experts. We've partnered with Google and others about doing um, uh, air quality monitoring uh, that's mobile, um, picking up real-time information, more places. The Environmental Protection Agency is now expanding um, local air quality monitoring and offering grants to localities. So for anybody on this call who's interested in this, um, it's good to look at the grants from EPA to help expand and equip your communities with um, more air quality monitoring information. And one of the uh, really interesting things that EDF did a couple of years ago was um, partner with Kaiser Health. And so they overlaid the data they collected with health information to understand um, more clearly about you know, heart disease impacts, asthma hospitalization. And that's really when you get into the nitty gritty of how much cost shifting is happening from this pollution, which is essentially going into the atmosphere for free, going into our lungs. And especially for young kids, um, children and the elderly are particularly affected by this. You imagine how it affects your entire life, having a chronic condition like that, having to go to the hospital. People have to leave work to take care of their children who are sick. So I think we see a lot of these costs that haven't yet been quantified and EDF is helping to both equip the uh, local communities with the technology information they need. I love it. That's fantastic. And so if you can, we always send out um, a recap uh, during our talks with resources and information for folks who might want to follow up. So please do drop um, a link to the general page and any specific insights that connect to those points. Um, so let's let's actually build on that, um, Claudia. So um, Amy talked a little bit about how they're prioritizing community members and how they're finding ways um, to, to push resources and information to folks that they can digest and they can use in their day-to-day -day lives. From your research, how have you seen uh, climate change impact different communities? And how do you find ways to articulate those stories in very local contexts? And if you have examples, please do share. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things. I mean, Puerto Rico, right? In Puerto Rican, you can really see, you know, we're having increasing storms, increasing hurricanes and sea level rise. I mean, that is really impacting my island communities so much more so, right? In terms of there's, there's not many places to go. You can only go so far inland, right? When you're on an island. But I mean, I'll even bring it down to, you know, just living, I live in Columbia, South Carolina, which is interesting for an oceanographer because I live kind of in the, the middle of the state. I travel a lot to do my work. So we are at the confluence of, a, of several rivers. And so um, for us, you know, when those big storms, when those hurricanes and big storms happen and they come along the coast, they're not just impacting the coast, but, you know, we had huge flooding in my community and we get got hit over and over again with dams breaking, et cetera. And the communities they impacted the most um, were really our poor communities that were in the low level 
low-lying areas when the river's overtopped. And so when you think about how those communities are being disproportionately impacted by these like major events, right? Big floods, big rains, mudslides, you know, the communities where we don't, we don't have enough um, housing insurance, right? We don't have the resources to be able to go live somewhere for a few months while our homes get rebuilt. Um, so, I mean, that is like, right next door, right? These are these are the kinds of impacts that are that are happening. And, you know, just in general, you know, for me, um, you know, your kids are out there, they're playing soccer. I mean, I remember when, you know, August was the hot time and you used to take like the wet water breaks because you're like, oh, it is too hot. You can't go. But now it's October, you know, and you're taking the water breaks. Right. And so, I mean, these impacts in terms of, you know, things that are warming and kind of things that I see day to day, it's everywhere. Right. Even my hometown flooding that comes up to Charleston, like we have what's called um, sunny day flooding. It's a beautiful day out. It's great. And yet the streets are flooded. Right. Because high tide is coming in because that's what happens with sea level. Like, it just gets higher and higher and all those cities that are, are along the coast, right, are getting impacted. And that's, you know, that's really important for when you think about communities, communities of color, where do we live? We live on the coast, we live in big cities, you know, we're, we're getting impacted the most. So, so those are the, the things that I'm seeing day to day. And I'll, I'll tell you kind of the big things that we're, that I'm part of is, is something called Science Moms. Um, and I love it because really what it's talking about is just starting those conversations about climate and climate change and talking to, to other moms because we all love our kids. We all want what's best for our kids. If you're, you know, particularly if you're Hispanic, you're all about family, right? It is family is family is family. And so um, just having those conversations about what is it, why is it happening, what are the resources and what are the things that we can do? as a community, as a group to kind of change the conversation, not just be like, oh yeah, climate change is happening, but like, no, 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 like, no, seriously, like what, <laughs> what does that mean? And then what can we do collectively, you know, to, to write our, you know, our local governments, you know, our state governments, federal and be like, um, you know, we've known this is a problem for a really long time. You gotta, you gotta help, you gotta get, you know, put some investment in, make it happen. You know, that's, uh, those are the kinds of things that I'm really um, excited and interested in, in terms of getting the word out. And yeah, these are all really great insights. And it, it, it's got me thinking about um, kind of two sides of the coin. So on the one hand, what are the things that we do to be more prepared for some of these climate events that are already kind of happening and rolling our way? And then what are the things we do on the other side of the coin to, to slow this down, to ensure that we're not continuing to head in the wrong direction? Oh, prepared. It's hard to be prepared for, for climate and climate change. As Amy will tell you, I mean, a lot of the events that are happening are really like episodic. And when they happen, they happen. And there's, and it's not like it, it happens and you can come back, right? A lot of times when you have a forest fire, it burns your house down, right? When, when you have flooding, it floods your house. So in terms of being prepared, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, everything from having, having things packed, you know, making sure you have your important papers and kind of easily accessible, you know, good places to go so you can grab and go when you need to, but also to, you know, making sure that you're cognizant of kind of the things that you're doing, you know, day to day in terms of, you know, 
do you really need to drive the mile to work? Maybe you could walk, you know? And, and while those are little things, I think they, they do add up. I mean, but, but preparing for climate change, I mean, I think that's the, that's the, the big rub, right? There's, there's no real preparation, except we're all gonna pick up and move and endure, really. It's a horrible thing to say endure but i i think that unless we kind of change what it is that we're doing and and how we're and and innovate right so we're putting all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere number one stop putting fossil fuels and pollution in the atmosphere right number one right everyone's like well just stop then <laughs> once we can you know that's uh um, and that's going to take investment and and broad scale investment by our by I think you know really our government and industry to really um, think differently about what it is um, we're doing. Thank you. That's helpful. And again, as we think about our role um, in the U.S. as we expand our presence and all around the world, these are topics that we're constantly grappling with. How do we, you know, support preparedness, but also deal with the realities? To what I think you highlighted perfectly is that. Even the most prepared household can still be devastated by one of these, you know, catastrophic events, and you know, you still end up in a situation where you're having to rebuild your life or or try to be resilient in the face of a, a tremendous setback. Um, Amy, one of the things that we often kind of weave into our conversations at Tuesday Talks, especially when we're thinking about um, big and complex challenges or things that might feel quite daunting, are sources of optimism or things that. Uh, our speakers and experts are feeling excited about. So I wonder if you might share with us a few things that keep you excited and motivated in work and what gives you optimism that, you know, we can turn the ship in the right direction. Yeah, well, um, I guess, you know, it's it's both the, the challenge and opportunity of um, being the generation in the shoes of having to do this. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's a burden, but it's also exciting to, to make progress, you know, um, I think there's, we have a lot to fight for, right? And um, making a better world for future generations is is a great thing to do. And, um, you know, I, I feel, you know, kind of good about that in the day-to-day -day and get a lot of energy from the people working to solve these problems. Um, because, you know, what else do you want to do with your with your time, your education, your life? And I, I think, um, you know, I get a lot of good energy from the people I talk to about um, the satisfaction they find in their work, um, helping to restore ecosystems, helping to develop new technologies, um, you know, thinking about those things. So I, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. And I guess specifically, um, some things that I'm excited about right now are um, the opportunity to price climate risk at the SEC right now, which is exciting. Um, also, elections are coming up. And, um, you know, when we think about actions we can take on Earth Day, I think, you know, um, getting out there, eye on the prize, voting um, for uh, candidates who are going to represent um, our values is, is an exciting opportunity ahead and, um, and helping to get everybody on the same page to, to think about those, those types of goals. Um, but yeah, otherwise, if we can really scale research and development funding for new solutions, and um, I, I think that will, you know, uh, will be a great way to incentivize new innovation for the future. Thank you. What about you, Claudia? What are what are sources of inspiration or optimism for you and your work? Amy. <laughs> um, and no, and I, I guess, you know, I'm really, I'm serious, you know, like I, 
um, feel really old right now, actually. But I, I think about my kids. I think about all the students who are coming through and they're, you know, they're getting their degrees and they are, they are engaged. They care. They're thinking about this. I mean, everybody is. And I am really optimistic that we are going to address some of these really deep questions and, and make some answers. Little things like, I have students who graduate who's you know, looking very carefully about how solar panels, right, might slowly change to be more efficient in capturing sunlight. And it's making a huge difference. How to, how to prolong battery life, right? Um, what's, the, what's the most effective way that you can develop um, grids for looking at where people live and where they should go and charge their electric cars and how to make that more efficient? Um, how do you involve communities that are that are absolutely being impacted by rising sea level, um, you know, changing fisheries, right? When that's that's what they rely on, and and to to take ownership and to and to raise their voices up loud to so that to make sure that people are being heard. So, you know, it is. You're right. I mean, it's we have these conversations, and you know, I can see why people don't want to talk about climate change. It's like gloom and doom and the glass is half empty and there's arsenic in it and you know it's it it can be really um <laughs> depressing but but again at the same time I think you know we got to talk about it and then you know I I do think we we can we can solve it we do it's just we have to pay attention and we need to think about where we're putting our investments right billions of dollars into oil exploration maybe we could take a few of that and and put it in a different <laughs> a different place so um so yeah i'm i'm uh, i actually am, am very optimistic that we we can do it but we got to work now right now not later not you know 10 days from now but like like every day you know we have to we have to start having that conversation and um and making a difference I can appreciate the urgency of your optimism and also the humor in it, our ability to laugh our way towards some solutions. So thank you for that. Um, Ladarian, I'm gonna uh, pass the mic to you. I know we have uh, some questions that have come in from the audience. It, like Can it looks like Candy's able to join us. Welcome Candy. Um, so Ladarian, take us forward. Thanks Ron and thanks to the speaker. So my first question is for Candy. Thanks Candy for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Um, there is a specific question for you. Can you share with us or just maybe highlight um, the history of how indigenous communities were placed on certain lands and how climate change is impacting them specifically around natural resources. We've chatted a little bit with Claudia and with Amy already around natural resources and some of them that we shouldn't be using and just ways to rethink about, um, to rethink them. So I would love for you to kind of share the history there and share maybe some examples of how indigenous communities are kind of pushing back against some of the natural resource um, destruction on their lands. <laughs> Darn it, I wish I wasn't late. I need all the time I can get uh, to answer that question. <laughs> You're here now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so first of all, and so in my Hiradza language, I said, hello, relatives. My name is Eagle Woman. My English name is Candy White, and I am a Mandan Hiradza Arikara Nation citizen from North Dakota, currently uh, calling in from uh, Montana, so Abzalga territory. Some people know it as Crow Country, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, it was funny when I got the call about Earth Day. I was like, "Wow, 
you know, as natives, we always say every day is Earth Day. <laughs> and um, at home, we tease each other about it, right? When we're like, every day is Earth Day, we're stewards of the land. And then my friend will be, gee, not that sacred, you know? <laughs> not everybody has that same outlook, right? That same take. And you don't have to be all sacred about it to understand the even scientific connections that we have to the land, right? There's a reason why when you go outside and you're in a forest, you feel good. It's because the bark on the trees <laughs> help the tree feel good, rubs off on you, you feel good. You, you know, if you lay on the ground, all the chemicals that our bodies are made up of, I should say the elements rather, are, are from the earth, you know? So there's no, when we talk about these sort of sacred things, it's more, there's like an explanation for everything. And that's the same for like the work that I do now with the Indigenous Environmental Network. And impacted communities right so i come from a community right now where they're doing fracking an extreme form of energy and they're taking oil out and they're flaring all the natural gas and it's been happening for over a decade <laughs> without this stopping we're talking about fires flares all around you 24 7 for easily over 10 years and people getting sick, frontline communities. And this has been something that's been happening since the quote unquote industrial revolution, which is when we really screwed ourselves and got us into this huge mess. You know, we have been saying as indigenous peoples for about 500 years or so now, hey, if you do this, it's gonna turn out bad. And I'm not sitting here to say, we told you so. <laughs> We're actually continuing to push back against the system because it's the system that's broken, right? It's It's, it's how we were trained into believing the propaganda that we need everything. We need our Swiffer wet jets. We have to have them. How are we going to clean our floor without them? You know, we, we have to be able to go to the grocery store every single day and get what we need because hell, if I'm going to plant a seed, right? <laughs> and that's what we're trying to change is more of the the thinking around how our brains are wired into believing we need all these things that we don't really need. How do we know that? Because people were living here on the planet for a long time before the industrial revolution and they survived. That's why we're here. You know, we've only messed it up in these last couple hundred years, pretty extremely. And the, the thing I'm a little concerned about is um, the topic around solutions, right? Because there are a lot of false solutions that do exist out there that perpetuate the industry as being able to continue to make money, because that's what it ultimately comes down to is who has the power, who has the control, who's making the money, right? I mean, that's the ultimate um, big piece of the pie that um, people want in terms of a capitalistic society. So capitalism is continued growth unchecked forever. That's what we've been doing, especially in the United States. And guess what? It's, it's not working. It's not sustainable, right? And so we do things, I do things like community gardens and um, tribal gardens, and we get out and we teach our kids how to grow something. You know, it's, it's exciting. It's so exciting to put a little baby seed into the ground and then you watch it grow and pretty soon you have a plant. Pretty soon maybe you grew some tomatoes and then you can make your own fresh tomato salad, right? And you're like, whoa, I am totally not reliant on somebody else for me to go outside and get my tomato. That's, that's empowering. So it starts with those kind of like baby steps and those reconnection steps and making people feel good about themselves. Like, hey, if you go stand on the ground outside in the summer, depending on where you are without your shoes on, in five minutes, you actually feel better. They're like, what? Why? <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sacred thing. No, it's the, it's the minerals in your body realigning with 
there are literally physically scientific things happening. So that's what we do. That's what we do by not getting people stuck in apathy, right? Like, oh, it is gloom and doom. <laughs> what are we doing? There is a serious side to it, but there's also a side of where do we meet people where they are? How do we meet people where they are? It's not just a NIMBY issue anymore, not in my backyard. It's a, we are all here together. How do we, how do we trundle through this? But even with solar, you know, we're seeing our indigenous brothers and sisters in the global South saying, look, these companies from Canada and the US are down here mining and displacing us. So the problem is the way people go about these things. The problem is the way people scale up a lot of these solutions when they can be localized distributed solutions instead of huge corporate scale money-making monster solutions. And what I'm talking about is really a David and Goliath story, but it's also a necessity. So in the past 10 years for the work that we've been doing, we've been actually able to keep out billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere just by pushing back against industry, just by speaking up. And that's only a handful of us. So there are reports that people can point to, and I can drop them in the chat if that helps you. Yeah, we have can, it. please share. Yeah, I'm gonna share that. I'm gonna check there because I know the rest of you wanna say more, some more things, but I'll share our indigenous resistance against climate or against carbon reports. And then I'll share a couple of other booklets. Um, one is called Hoodwinked in the Hot House, and it talks about some of the false solutions to the climate crisis. And the biggest thing I think you should take away from that is that it's not about um, how do we get enough energy to keep doing what we're doing? It's how do we decrease the amount of energy, the insane amount that we're wasting on a daily at the expense of somebody else. And typically that somebody else is a person who is a brown, black, indigenous, Asian, Latino, person of color. I mean, typically it's a person that has been like my ancestors, set aside over here to kind of be getting out of the way until you discover, which is what happened in the US. Oh, there's oil, coal and gas where we put these uh, native people that we're trying to set aside. This is the history of the US, right? This is, there was a genocide. That's what the country's founded on. Like, we're gonna put you on a reservation. Shoot, you have oil. Let's make up some laws real quick to change it so that we can get it. And you can have some, but like mostly you're gonna get the pollution. And the reason why yeah, I do, I do yeah. want to hop back in because you said one thing that I think um, Amy and Claudia would want to speak on is about systems, right? Yeah. Us replacing systems um, for Amy and Claudia specifically, because thank you, Candy, you gave us some great examples. Would love to know if you all have seen anyone doing this correctly, any country or any city around the world that's really putting together some great policies um, to push back at systems or adjusting their systems to really take in mind um, climate change and its impact on communities. So maybe let's start with Claudia and then hear from Amy if you all have seen any really good, good examples. And feel free to keep it outside the US if you've seen some um, in other countries. <laughs> I guess I'll say that there's no one country or community that's that's doing all the things right um, that's that's kind of impossible, but I do think that there are ones that are doing a better job than we are. Um, I talk about Europe all the time in terms of the cost of, of gas and what they've been investing in Germany is a great example of a country that's really invested quite a bit in what we call green technologies solar um, Iceland. Right, and they, they all, and, and really what they all are bringing to the table is, um, Candy will mention, is they're bringing the resources that they have, you know, within their systems to really think about, critically about kind of the energy that they use and how they reduce that, that energy use. Um, 
it it's a fundamental shift in how we think about um, we live our lives and the infrastructure that we have developed. So in some ways, emerging countries have um, much better opportunities to, to do much better than we do because they, if we invest and we build the right solutions, they, um, they can be green at the start as opposed to kind of starting you know, from this um, place where they never actually thought about putting in you know, subways or um, community opportunities or building things in such a way that you're not driving 20 miles to the store that you, you know, that you have enough space so you can build your own garden, you know, all of these things. Um, so even still, right, even with a country like Germany, for example, which we like to put up there as kind of an example of a, of a country that's really trying to look forward and, and be better about it, they still rely an awful amount right on on fossil fuels to, to keep their economy going we we can see this you know the recent conflict right um the invasion of russia into ukraine right they're reluctant to, to stop getting that gas because of all the economic implications so um no what i what i really think is is we we need a wholesale culture change in all the things that we do in order to um as again, as Candy's mentioned, as Amy's mentioned, we, we have to just stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Like we just have to stop. Like we have to, we have to reduce, we have to, to figure out new and innovative, innovative, innovative ways um, to, to be better. And that will be, that might be painful, right? I mean, you know, like we might have to do things, oh my gosh, differently than we've been doing them before. Change is hard. We don't like to change. Like, let's all admit it, you know? However, I think that if we recognize that, you know, like if we if we do this now, in the end, it's good for us. Maybe it's like saving for retirement. Like we're not really good about saving for retirement or, you know, or <laughs> thinking about, you know, if I eat these three cookies now, you know what I mean? So, but I, I think we just have to be, we, we got it, we gotta be better. So, um, and I don't know, Amy probably has a bunch of ideas as well. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. And just going ahead with that retirement analogy, it's like having a bunch of bad advisors or something like that who've been giving you a pretty bad deal. And then, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot about what Candy said. And, um, you know, I really uh, appreciate um, the work of Robin Wall Kemmer, who's working to bring in indigenous ways of knowing into Western education, because I, I think you're totally right, um, Claudia, about a culture shift that we need. Because, yeah, you know, we have a lot of we have lots of solutions, um, but I mean, reducing the amount of energy we use and is is a huge part of that. Also, the energy we do use, a lot of times, it's really inefficient. You know, they're kind of basic things that we need to do. And I, I spoke with somebody who works in sustainable design and just the projections of the future population growth. You know, we're going to be building a lot into the future. Um, the way our culture is moving, we have this momentum. How do we how do we evolve our culture to live in concert with our environment? And um, you look at globally um, indigenous populations living in forested areas and the, the protection that we have. We still have those forests because indigenous people have been protecting them. And um, it's it's interesting um, to think about you know how. Um, that works and what what culture we have of an extraction based model and um, you know how we can evolve our culture because I think that's going to be a huge part of it. 
But in terms of other systems, um, to, to that question, I think um, in our economic system, since a lot of this pollution still happens for free, pricing mechanisms to ensure that when pollution happens, there's, um, there's an incentive structure to reduce the amount of pollution that's put out in, in there. And so what the plan is to cut emissions by half by 2030 and to, to eliminate them by 2050. And um, there are about 30 economies right now in the world that are working on climate disclosure mechanisms. And I mentioned that before about the SEC considering that Europe has been a leader. Um, the European Union countries um, working on that because um, we need to price this into our economic system so they stop <laughs> um, polluting for free. And um, I, I think getting those wheels turning is something that um, I'm intrigued about. And then also systems-wise, um, we've solved big problems before and taking action on the ozone layer. And it's another source of potential optimism and hope to look at what motivated world leaders to get together um, to start banning the chemicals leading to that. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting diplomatic regulatory scheme that we can look to for an example of, you know, um, why we can have hope about, about some of these things and, and thinking about our systems as, um, as uh, ones that can be reformed. Thank you for that. So I'm gonna take us in a slightly different direction. I think we've talked very high level systems, right? I wanna bring it back down to more of a personal level and loop back in Candy as well. Can you all maybe make some recommendations on how we can all celebrate Earth Day um, this week and what we can do in our own personal lives to really keep in mind like climate. I think growing up, it's always push, right? To recycle, recycle, recycle. But I know there are so many other ways that you can really keep the environment in mind. So would love for each of you maybe to give us one example or two or what people can do for Earth Day um, to keep climate in mind. And we are coming close to time. So I'll just ask each person to keep your remarks um, within a minute or so. And let's maybe start with Candy and then go to Claudia and then get our last word from Amy. Okay, cool. So instead of having to pick up stuff that you have to recycle, try going to one of those stores where you take your jars in and you fill up your um, jugs of detergent and stuff that aren't in plastics. Like recycling is only going to get us so far because microplastics never disappear. I'm sorry, I have to say it. Like they just came out with a report like, oh, you actually have microplastics in your blood because they never break down and go away, you know? So, and where does plastic come from? Oh yeah, petroleum industry. So let's get real. Here's what you can really do. Push back against those that are in position of power, like senators, state leaders, um, federal leaders, like really get in there and think about what it is that they're making decisions on our behalf about. Do we know what they're talking about? Do we agree with them? Because at the end of the day, bottom line, let's be really real. There are like a hundred people that are uber rich trillionaires in the world that are actually controlling a lot of things and working with government systems. That's why we keep failing. Like we're not targeting the right people who are actually getting the money in their pocket. I'm sorry to say it. There's a reality about knowing who's making your decisions and having your own voice about it. If you don't agree with them, say something, get out there and make your voice heard. And that is what's going to push change. But we have to do it collectively. I'm going to say to you, like I always tell my kids, a bug's life. Oh, we're just ants. What are we going to do? The grasshoppers are such big bullies and they're going to kill us. Holy crap, we didn't realize there was thousands and thousands of us. And actually, if we join forces as ants, we can beat the grasshoppers. And that could be how it could be a Disney fairy tale. Everybody lives happily ever after story. Yes, what she said. No, I mean, I'm serious. Like, you know, you know, do do the thing that you want to do, plant a tree, you know, think about it, but but it's it's collective action. I mean, I would actually challenge on Earth Day that A, you have a conversation about climate and climate change and get yourself into an uncomfortable space. 
I live in the South. I can have this conversation with many people very easily. I challenge all of you to have the conversation. Just talk about it. Not confrontationally, but, you know, what do you think about it? You know, what's your views? Why do you feel that way? So number one, start talk about it. Just talk about it. Number two, write a, write a letter, write an email. I guess we don't write letters anymore, but write, write an email, send an email, right? Which is also actually good for the environment. Um, send it to your, to your mayor, um, look up who your state representatives are. Um, just, you know, you can go to sciencemoms.com. I put that in the, in the chat. There's, there's a list, it's, it's even like close to a form. It gives you kind of some content and you can just edit it to kind of make it your own and hit the send button, right? I mean, we, we have to make our voices heard. It is not enough for each of us to do kind of our individual thing, recycle, walk up the stairs, have our own electric car. We've been doing this for decades and we haven't, we haven't, we actually, we're worse. We're worse now, right? Than, than what we've had. So no, I'm, I'm absolutely with Candy. Make your voices heard, get out there, talk about it, send letters, be, be, be gnats, be ants, ants, gnats, mosquitoes. I don't know, something more, you know, <laughs> you know, that we, we want to do. So, um, Amy. Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. I think collective action and what we can do together in our communities as fellow ants, as, um, you know, people living together and who have, um, you know, responsive local governments. Um, I think getting together with people in our communities were greater um, together um, as a collective voice and, um, and then thinking about the elections and um, how much they matter. Um, you know, I think we saw when when President Trump was elected, you know, that, um, you know, the Paris Agreement was immediately dismissed. Climate change was erased from government websites. We lost a lot of time. And um, it's it's just so important um, to think about um, the scale of change that we need. And it's both local and it's at our, our federal level. And um, and as Americans, we emit far more emissions and many people do around the world and we just have more of a responsibility to be aware of that and um, to be more conscientious. So um, yeah, I, one of my colleagues put it that our everyday actions that we can take, composting and things like that is like working our muscles, calisthenics to our, our bigger actions of you know political change and social movements. Perfect, thank you all for um, giving us some recommendations there. So going to pass it back over to Ryan, we have one more question for you all before we leave for the day. Yeah, the time flew by as it always does, but thank you again to each of our speakers for uh, sharing your knowledge with us and just for being uh, such a great source of light and inspiration. Um, we, we always close by asking folks to tell us one thing that you're doing these days to create joy in the world around you. Uh, or something that's bringing you a ton of joy these days that you want to tell us about. Um, so let's hear first from Claudia, then Candy, and we'll get our last word from Amy today. Well, I'm really enjoying spending time um, with my family, going out, hiking. Um, I am one of those, I think, lucky ones and that my youngest is about to head off and leave the nest. And I know I should be shedding a tear, but at the same time, I'm like, <laughs> so um, this isn't a, uh, so these are the wonderful things that, that we're doing is, is spending time together as, you know, as a family and really, really appreciating um, what that is and then letting them fly away. 
maybe not come back for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't. I recorded this. They're probably like, mom, I can't believe you just said that. I'm like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) that was funny. I too have kids, but they're a lot younger, so they'll be here for a while, but I'm enjoying the um, picking out the seeds now, getting them ready. Um, honestly, the garden thing, they're so cute. When we grow watermelons, they're just like, oh, and we can eat this. We can eat this and it's sweet. You know, it's like candy. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so that's really fun. But then also, like I said in the beginning, I work with the Indigenous Environmental Network and we have been successful in changing, like shifting the role around like funding and what people are actually putting money towards. And so we've been growing. Like <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but I've been working with them for 14 years and we just now are able to like actually grow our staff to actually get resources, to be able to put more work and more energy into the grassroots communities that I honestly believe have all of the solutions necessary and that are trying to do the right things. They just need that help, that little push with resources and trainings and that being able to do that is like amazing. I mean, growth is painful. Yes, (laughs) but sustainable growth is always good. And I'm really happy that I'm a part of a team that, you know, is making an impact. What about you? Um, I I try to spend as much time in the national forest as possible. So I I go out a lot and just spend time, you know, listening to birds and trying to understand. I I moved during the pandemic, so I'm learning all the trees and the birds and the nature. And so just it's humbling to to go into a new environment and say, you know, have to start there. But it's also really exciting to learn about it. It's, um, It's really fun. That's a perfect note for us to end on. Um, So folks who are on the line, who are willing and able, turn on your camera, turn on your mic, join me in giving a round of appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you all for being with us. That said, we still have a few more minutes left. We will uh, invite DJ Sofa to take us out with another amazing set. Thank you all for being with us today on Tuesday Talks.